Word. So if you have your Bible, uh, open to Matthew chapter 1. So um, we're breaking away from our study through Romans until next semester when everybody gets back. And uh, just another announcement, today is the last, is the last Sunday for the next couple of weeks for, for, to have Sunday school. So next Sunday, which is Christmas Day, and the Sunday after that, which is New Year's Day, it'll only be the, the morning service, the 1045 a.m. service. No Sunday school, no evening service. Uh, Mr. Kenneth, could you shut that door, please, sir? Appreciate that. Um, so no evening service and no Sunday school, but um, for the, the next two Sundays. Um, but we're going to, yeah, I can do that. Yep, yep, yep. Um, all right, but we're going to turn to a well-known text this morning. It's the birth narrative, part of the birth narrative at least, of, um, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, certainly appropriate for us to think about during the Advent season. I think I've mentioned, I know I've mentioned a couple times, I don't know how much on Sunday mornings, but I know on Wednesday night I did. Historically speaking, in the church, Advent has been a season uh, for uh, thinking about the second coming of Jesus, the second Advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and, uh, and, I, and so I thought about uh, preaching a text on that, but I thought about, here's what I thought about. Uh, I think it's appropriate in Advent, I know historically it's been about the second coming, it's certainly appropriate to think about his first coming as well, but I, in thinking about his second coming, I thought that it's especially helpful to spend a little bit of time thinking about his first coming to help us keep in proper perspective how we think about his second coming. Um, because sometimes I think believers, when they think about the second coming of Christ, um, there, there's, a, there's more fear and trepidation thinking about that than there is hope and anticipation. Um, like, I just think, oh, you know, this is not a, there's not always a, a complete calmness of spirit at the thought of the second coming of Christ. Uh, and, and, and certainly that's, that's understandable in part when we understand and think about the, the nature of the second coming of Christ as, a, as opposed to his first coming. Um, I mean, that, and that, there's a, a good distinction of, of the differences between his first coming and second coming is, is like even in the Old Testament, it was anticipating a difference. Like, well, let me clarify that. The Old Testament saw it all happening at once. The New Testament revealed it was going to happen in two stages. But like Isaiah 61.2 says, it describes, that one verse describes the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as the year of our Lord's favor. And the second coming as the day of vengeance of our God. Right, so that's the framework in which it describes it, and 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 it's that's and you you read the you read the the New Testament accounts of his second coming. I mean, it's 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 cataclysmic, uh, and that's reflected in songs we sing, like the hymn "It Is Well." It's always struck me that that um, that stanza in "It Is Well," uh, and Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. Sometimes we sing, some people will sing, when my faith shall be sight. Um, not wrong. That's just not what's written. It's the faith. The Christian faith will not just be hope and promise. It will be reality. Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The, the, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And those words, 
even so have always stood out to me in that stanza. Um, uh, because if you really think about what that, again, what that stanza is saying, um, it's going to be surreal, to say the least, when the Lord returns. The clouds being rolled back, the trumpet resounding, the Lord coming. Uh, but those, those words, even so, even so, those are there to communicate the exact comfort and assurance that every Christian ought to have at the thought of the second coming of Christ. It's communicating that even though, even though it's going to be a day like no other day, and it's going to be surreal in every way and sobering to behold with the eyes, even so, it's going to be well with our souls on that day who know Christ by repentance and faith. And, and that, that comfort at the thought of the second coming of Christ uh, and that assurance that it is even, even though it's, a, it's the day of vengeance of our God for all who are outside of Christ, that even so it's well with us. And there is no, there is no fear that ought to be in our minds at that thought because we are safe in Christ. That is... That, that comfort and that assurance is precisely gained when we don't forget about or don't lose sight about what he did at his first coming to prepare us for his second coming. And when we think about his uh, coming again in the context of what he has already done at his first coming. Um, and it's for that reason, uh, which certainly next Sunday is Christmas Day, but, but also that it's, it's good to, to remember his first coming and, and what the scripture teaches us about that as we anticipate his second coming that, that we're going to think about this birth narrative this morning. I want to consider from first, from first, from Matthew 1, uh, 18 to 25, I'm going to consider the circumstances that surrounded his coming, what it teaches us about that, and the significance that that, that holds for us um, and for anybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, yeah, that being said, uh, let's read this text. It's a simple text. I pray that God will give us uh, hearts, attentive hearts and minds. to. It's so familiar to us, but to think about these things afresh this morning. So Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not 
until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you please, as we come to this very familiar passage to us, because it is still, despite its familiarity, um, it is still your holy and inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, would you thereby give us eyes to see the truth? Uh, there, there is a lot, of, a lot of truth in these words, Lord. There's no way we could capture it all. Um, so would you help us to see what you would have us to see Um, eyes to see it, what you would have us to see this morning. Would you give us minds to understand clearly what you would have us to see from it? Would you give us hearts to embrace it and love it and and wills to follow it and uh, and, uh, to to live our lives according to it, to make decisions uh, according to it, to submit to it? Lord, would you give me the help that I need to teach and would you give us all ears to hear? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, this is a really straightforward and familiar text. Um, and, and the plainness and the simplicity of it, I think, is, um, is part of the beauty of, of God's Word. It's one of the ways that I think Scripture testifies to itself that it is God's Word because it's, it, it, it is eternally profound truths just put so plainly for us. But um, if, you, if you're taking notes, here's what I want us to see from it, and then we'll dive into it. First, just, just two points. Um, first, I want us to, to look... Uh, generally at the circumstances of Jesus' birth. The circumstances of Jesus' birth. Because I think, and the, the circumstances as they're presented to us in this passage, I think there are some things in the way this is framed for us that are helpful to us, and, and, and we can learn from that. The circumstances of Jesus' birth. And then second, I want us to look specifically at the angel's announcement to Joseph. The angel's announcement to Joseph. And to see what that teaches us and reminds us about two things. One, who Jesus is, and two, what he came to do. The angel's announcement to Joseph. And what does that teach us about who Jesus is and what he came to do? This is basic Christianity that we never graduate from. Um, So let's dive in and and take a closer look at the text. Think first about the circumstances of Jesus' birth, as told in this passage. So starting, starting at the very beginning which is a very good place to start. You like, y'all get that? Anyway, uh, Matthew, I'm, I'm such a dad. Uh, anyway, uh, Matthew begins in verse 18, and he very uh, straightforwardly tells us that it just starts, and the birth of Jesus Christ took place like this. I mean, th- this, is, this is what happened, Right? Um, and so he's about to lay out what are the circumstances that surrounded this momentous event. And one of the things that, uh, that the Holy Spirit through Matthew is highlighting to us, I believe, as we, as we read this text carefully, and, and what he is communicating to us as he, as he brings to the forefront these particular circumstances, he's highlighting the grace of God. Um, and we see that in this text just simply by doing what I encourage you to do so many times, when you read the Bible, whenever you take up a passage and read it, what's the first question you should ask of any text you come to? What does this teach me about God? Who am I looking for first in a passage? 
God, and what does it teach me about Him? Um, because practically speaking, when we read the Scriptures, unless we're just reading it just to say we read it, if we go into stuff further, like practically speaking, so I know the temptation is all often uh, we read it and we immediately jump to what does this say about about me or or my circumstances? How do I how do I apply this to what I'm going through? And those aren't wrong questions. They just shouldn't be the first one, right? Because first of all, for two reasons: one, what it teaches you about God is eternally more important than your current circumstances, and secondly understanding first what it teaches you about God is going to influence you and help you understand what it then says about you and your circumstances, right? And applies to your life. So you know that, but repetition and reminders are good things. So if there's one thing that's clear about God in this passage is that He is a gracious God. That's not something new here. That is all through the Old Testament. I'll just give you one representative example. Psalm 145 verse 8. It just distills what you see so many times in the Old Testament. Psalm 145.8 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's all through the Old Testament, and we don't get past the first chapter of the New Testament, and we find this attribute of God confirmed to us again, albeit in narrative form. How so? Well, let's look at it a little more closely. In verse 18, it tells us that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, which means what? What does, what does it mean to say she was betrothed to Joseph? We might be tempted, and understandably so, to equate this, this idea of her being betrothed to Joseph, to equate that to our current understanding of somebody being engaged before they were married. Uh, and, I mean, I can see how we, we do that, but in some ways I guess they're, they're similar, but in many ways they're just not. They're not those aren't the same thing. Uh, it's, for exa- one example is in our, in our culture, if you heard about, uh, and it wouldn't be completely uncommon in the culture at large for engagements to be broken or, or, or called off. Like if you, if you heard that somebody was engaged and they called off their engagement and didn't get married, I mean, if they're a close friend of yours and, or you knew them, you might be, wow, that was that might be surprising, but that wears off, and then life goes on. That's about all that happens with that. Um, but that would not be the case in that day, right? In, in first century Israel, betrothal was much more final. It was much more com- committed, uh, permanent, legally so. Legally so is what I'm, I'm trying to say. It, it, in that way, it's much more significant than our current understanding of engagement. There's nothing legal about engagement today. There was then. To say, that, to say that Mary was betrothed to Joseph meant that although she was not yet living under his roof, they had not just pledged to one another that they were going to get married. Whole families would have been involved in it, and they would have made that commitment before witnesses, and there would have been a legal nature to it. Um, and, and, and because of that, it's that, that legal bindedness of that um, is, is what distinguishes it. And so even though they didn't yet enjoy all the privileges that come with being fully married, they were considered legally betrothed uh, with a much stronger legal binding nature to it. And that's why, as you read this passage, how is Joseph referred? Uh, how, is he, how is he described here? Uh, he's described in this passage of being her husband, right? Is he not? Um, he's described as 
being her husband. Uh, and, and it's why in, in verse um, ni- uh, 19, he, is, he considers doing what? Divorcing her, right? So that's how legally binding betrothal was. Now, what is significant about that? I, I, I don't think this is just an incidental detail or something you just blaze right past. I think it, it shows that when the Lord chose to send his son into the world, uh, despite the fact that he was doing it in, in this miraculously extraordinary way, he chose to send his son into a family of husband and wife. I mean, and in that one fact alone, we see the importance that the Lord gives to marriage as he's defined it. Uh, I think it's, it's significant that when God prepared to send his son into the world, he chose a husband and a wife. He chose a family. And because of that, we're able to see the grace of God in a much fuller way uh, in these circumstances. Because think about how, so because you, you've got not just one, one but three involved. So we're going to think about how do, we see the, how do we see God's grace to all three parties in this equation? Yes, to, to, the, to the son, the kindness God shows to the son. Jesus Christ, who's coming into the world, but the grace he shows to Joseph and to Mary in this whole set of circumstances. So think about how we see the Father's loving kindness to the Son in these circumstances of the incarnation. First, um, legally having a mother and a father um, added legitimacy to Jesus' birth. Um, I mean, had, had Mary and Joseph not being married, but certainly hadn't even been betrothed yet, um, Mary would have been labeled a prostitute in this equation. Um, and later in the, in the Gospels, when, when, for example, they said, when they questioned Jesus, isn't he the son of the carpenter? They would have said, isn't he the son of the prostitute, Mary? You know? Um, it added legitimacy to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only this, but thinking of the loving kindness to the son in Luke's gospel, in Luke, Luke 2.52, when it says that Jesus uh, increased in wisdom and in favor and stature, with, stature and favor with God and man, I mean, you don't, have, you don't have to interpret that to mean that Jesus did all of that on his own uh, in, in a vacuum. No, the simple fact that he had been given the, the nurture and the care of a family, a husband and a wife, and, and thereby siblings alongside him. It helped him as, it, as any of us grow in, in wisdom. Uh, it helped him to do that as well. We see the Father's loving kindness to the Son in sending him in this way. But as I indicated just a moment earlier, we also see God's grace to Mary in the circumstances of Jesus' birth. We, we see that, again, to re- repeat what I just said, in the fact that she was already betrothed when the time was right for God to send His Son into the world. I say this because, humanly speaking, think about, if you're just thinking it from Mary's perspective, think about the weight of what she was being asked to do. The weight of that. She had been chosen to be the instrument by which God would come into the world, not just a baby, God. <laughs> and, and that's hard to imagine. But at least, humanly speaking, rather than her going through it alone, God gave her a companion in Joseph to go through that with. I mean, th- th- these, are, these are 
These aren't hugely deep concepts to think about, but they're real. She gave Mary a companion to, to go through this. It, it, it's what it what what that tells me is it says when I'm when I'm reading this and I show that look at what God gave Mary in this. How gracious of God in this. We, it's this kind of circumstance, we almost don't have words to describe what, what, what Mary might have been thinking in that moment and, the, and the, the overwhelmingness of that, the fact that he gave, he gave, God gave her a husband in, in Joseph uh, and this companion. It, it tells me, when I then take what that taught me about God and then what I apply that to my life, it's things like that that encourages me that to, to, to think about every. Every gift is a kindness from the Lord. Like, that's, what it, that's how I take. What does that teach me about God? What does that teach me about my circumstances? That teaches me that every gift is a kindness from the Lord. And not only that, but that the fact that he was mindful of her in that, in that way, that he is, to us as well, mindful of the seemingly, seemingly small things. We also see God's grace to Mary in the fact that not, that, not just that he gave her a companion, but that Joseph was that companion. Joseph was. Because look in verse 19 at how Joseph is described to us. And her husband, Joseph, that, that word husband there again shows us the, the binding nature, legally binding nature of betrothal. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her sh- to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And, you know, so how is he presented there? He's presented as a just man, as a righteous man. And even though it's not put in these words, if you want to summarize the rest of it right there, you see that he was a kind man, right? So let's think about that. First, it says he was a just and righteous man. What would that mean? Because those aren't throwaway words. They are words that that genuinely described what kind of man he was. So what kind of man would he have been to be described as just and righteous? Clearly, he's a man who, if you looked at him and, and said, how would I describe his life? He's a man who loved God. And he's a man who wanted more than anything else to be obedient to the, to the word and the will of the Lord. And so when he, not surprisingly then, when he heard the news uh, that Mary was expecting a child, and he knew that they had not yet consummated a marriage yet, he felt like he had to make a decision. And so the passage tells us that he decided to put her away or to, or to divorce her. I don't, I don't know how, that, that had to have been hard, but he loved, the, he loved the Lord. He loved the law of God. He knew that the marriage bed, according to the will of God, was to be kept undefiled. He knew that marriage was a holy institution. And so he, on that basis, knew, felt like he had to divorce her. But at the same time, it tells us that he was a kind man. Because as we, we see that while he did make a decision to divorce her, he, he, did, he didn't take all the recourses he could have taken in that day. Like, uh, that he, you know, in the, in the Old Testament, if, if, a, if a woman was found to be in adultery, who was betrothed to a man, certainly if she was fully married to that man, she could have been stoned to death. Now, by the, by the first century in Joseph and Mary's time, 
that stoning to death was not really taking place for that, but but you could have been just publicly disgraced, just uh, expelled from the community, almost like you were a leper, right? Now, I've already said that certainly Mary would have received ridicule and shame either way if he divorced her, but at the very least, Joseph didn't want to do it in a in a way that brought more ridicule upon her than she was already going to receive. And you can feel the conundrum of Joseph. He was a righteous man, and so he didn't want to participate in what appeared to him to be sin, what he thought was the result of sin. Remember, at this time, no angel had appeared to him yet. And so what, what is he supposed to think? Right? On, on the one hand, he's a righteous man, and so that's what he sees. On the other hand, he's a kind man, and he didn't want to publicly shame her. He didn't want to bring the, the, the full weight of what could have been down on Mary's head. He would try to preserve Mary's honor as much as he could control, and so he would do things quietly. But in the end... We've seen his loving kindness to the son. We've seen his grace to Mary, not only in giving her a companion, but that Joseph was that companion. We see in the end God's grace to Joseph as well in what we see next in the story, which is revealing to him by the angel who this child in Mary's womb was and that he was not in her womb as a result of the sin of adultery. In fact, it couldn't be further from that. This child was in her womb by the Holy Spirit of God. And the messenger of the Lord tells Joseph not to divorce her, but take her fully as his wife and told him what name to give the child. We'll look at these verses more in just a minute. But if you look down in verse 24, we see the righteousness of Joseph. Again, we're told that he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took, him, he took his wife. And, and that's significant. Because it was through Joseph's line that Jesus was born in the tribe of Judah. And it's in the line of David. And would sit on David's throne as the fulfillment of David's throne. as king of kings, lord of lords. And so we've seen the goodness and the grace of God in the circumstances of Jesus' birth. In the family into which he placed the son. In the companionship that he gave to Mary in Joseph and that Joseph was a just and righteous and kind man. And to Joseph in the sending of an angel to, to tell him the truth and to guard him from doing something he, I'm sure he wrestled and didn't want to do anyway. Um, what, is this, what does this teach us? Before we move on to the second point, what is, this, what is something you can take away from this? Um, well, I look at it this way, like Mary certainly found herself in a situation that she didn't foresee. She didn't plan for it. She didn't, she didn't prepare for it in any way. How could she have? Um, to put it mildly, it was not going to be easy. And the same is true for Joseph in his circumstances. He didn't foresee this. He didn't prepare for it. He didn't plan for it. His reputation was on the line too. And it wasn't going to be easy for him either. But right here in the middle of that, in the middle of this difficult situation that neither of them planned for, 
was God's grace, and it was sufficient for them in ways that they wouldn't have foreseen. And mind you, it, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't just a difficult situation. Th- this is another wrinkle to this that I think you need to think about when you think about your own circumstances. This wasn't just a difficult circumstance that they found themselves in, you know? Whoa, well, you know, it's not just like mindlessly tumbling along in time and, oh, look where I've found myself. It may seem like that to us sometimes. No, this was a difficult situation that, yes, they found themselves in, but one that was God's own ordination for them. It was God's own ordination for them. And so just because we don't see it ahead of time and just because we don't plan for it, we haven't prepared for it, doesn't mean God hasn't. And quite the contrary, he is bringing these kinds of things to pass in our lives precisely so he can make his grace and provision known to us and all the more vividly and unmistakably. That's a, that's a thing I'm telling you now on this uh, December, whatever day it is. What day is it? December the 18th? Like, and you're sitting here in college Sunday school, and I'm telling you this, but I'm, the adults in the room can, can verify this. The longer you live, you will see that come to pass in your life. God is going to bring you into circumstances that you do not foresee, you did not prepare for, you would not have chosen. And those circumstances could be seasons, whole long seasons that stink. You know what I'm saying? It's just a, there are other ways to put it, but we're in Sunday school. And you can, you can cry out to the Lord and 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 cry out to the Lord. And it doesn't seem like anything ever changes. But God is not deaf. And he's not unmindful of you. And in his kindness and in his grace, he is going to bring a provision your way which you, couldn't, which you also couldn't have foreseen. And you certainly weren't planning on. And it would be so satisfying. And all the more satisfying and all the more glorifying to him and unmistakable his, his hand of grace and provision because of that season that he brought you into that you didn't plan for and didn't prepare for. It was all by his ordination to glorify his name and to, and to cause you to... Love him and trust him all the more. That's what we see in Joseph and Mary. Um, you know, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Give us today what we need for today. Tomorrow, we'll trust you to give us tomorrow. You know, that's, that's the posture of heart in prayer that remembers that God's grace is always timely. It's always more than sufficient. And I don't know... I don't know what all you might be going through now even, but God does. I mean, he knows exactly what you need. And he's going to give it to you in ways that you may not expect. But he's going to sustain you through it. So we've seen the circumstances. So now let's look briefly at the heart of the passage. And that is the angel's announcement to Joseph 
um, which we sort of skipped over when I was talking about Joseph. But these are, this is the heart of the passage where he told us who this child is. And part of his grace to Joseph was telling Joseph not just that, hey, Mary, Mary didn't sleep around on you, but it's also just not just that, but here's who this child is who's being born, and this is what he's coming to do. That's, that's his grace to Joseph. Let's think about the angel's announcement to Joseph. So go with me back to verse 20, uh, which, again, we didn't stop at earlier, and that, that, that's where we're told that while Joseph was making his plan to divorce her quietly, the angel of the Lord came to him um, and announced him what was really going on here, who this child is in her womb. And he tells Joseph, like I said, who the child is and what he came to do. So let's think about those two aspects of what the angel told him. First, the angel tells Joseph who this child is. At the end of verse 20, he tells Joseph that this child is not the product of sinful adultery. But as it says, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Um, and why he, why he is conceived in her by the Holy Spirit is fleshed out and explained in verses 22 and 23. Let's read those again. All this this her being conceived, her this child being conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. This took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is quoting from Isaiah seven fourteen right there, and he makes the point, as one commentator put it, that in Jesus, none less than God came right where we are. Jesus was being born of a woman, which means he's fully man. Hebrews 4.15 is going to say he, he will be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And at the same time, the fact that in this woman, in this flesh and blood, she, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit shows us that none less than God himself in human flesh was going to be with us. He is fully God and fully man forevermore. Just FYI, something that we don't often think about, that Jesus is still flesh and blood right now. At the right hand of the Father in heaven, the, in, the incarnation was for the rest of eternity. You know? Uh, why is that important? Because for all eternity, our standing place to be there with him is going to be in him. He always, forevermore, needs to be our representative, our substitute, our standing place, our reason for there, uh, being there. And so he took our place in, in, in coming. He took our place in life. He took our place in death. He took our place in resurrection. And he took our place in ascension. And he's taking our place all through eternity. And our whole, you know, as long as he is flesh and blood, he is, he is our substitute for all eternity, right? Um, but Matthew Tells, tells us this to show that it's precisely because Jesus is who he is, truly God and truly man. He tells us in brief form here that he was, he's, he was the angel tells him here, that he was this, this one that was conceived in Mary is going to be uniquely qualified to do what he's coming to do. Now, so think about with me real quickly what the angel told Joseph about what this child would do. He tells Joseph 
in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You could preach a whole sermon on that one verse. A son, Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Every word of that is important. Jesus was, but for our purpose, Jesus was God with us, conceived by the Holy Spirit to accomplish one thing, to save his people from their sins. He had to be God to bear the eternal weight of our sin. He had to be God to bear in a moment the eternal weight of our sin. For, for us, mere man, if we die apart from repentance and faith in Him, we will, our punishment will be for what duration? Eternity. It's an eternal, it's an eternal consequence because we have fully and finally sinned against an eternal God. If I bear it, I bear it for eternity. But because he is eternal God in human flesh, what he bears that I deserve, he can bear in a moment because he's eternal God. But he had to be a man to be our substitute and to live and die in our place. So he alone was qualified to, and able to be our Savior. And when the angel said he would save his people from their sins, he says, what does he mean by he will save his people from their sins? Again, basic Christianity. He meant from the penalty of our sin so that we could be forgiven as well as from the power of our sin so that we could be holy. Here's how 1 Peter 2.24 would put it. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What a merciful Savior. And I think that we bring all, that, that's, the, that's the meat and potatoes of this, of this passage. And I think knowing that this was not only his aim in sending the Son, but the accomplishment at his first coming for those who have repented and believed, I think that is precisely what ought to produce in us not only uh, peace, but actually delight and anticipation at the thought that this one is coming again. I think we need to think deeply on these things during this last week of our Advent season.